The ghosts of the grandmothers have been haunting me. Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navar. Today, my special guest is again Kevin Frank. Thank you for having me. We're not talking about anything FileMaker. We're just going just gonna to talk about music for this one. So, FileMaker geeks, tune out. Music geeks, tune in. Thanks. Yeah, this is really exciting because you and I have... First off, I want to start out by saying you were playing uh, Gershwin Prelude on the grand piano. Was that last year? Last year, year before. Or San Diego. It was San Diego. It was two years ago. I was really moved by that. You are a very fine classical pianist, and it was such a pleasure to hear you play, and that's also a beautiful... That was the second movement, the second prelude? Yeah, the second one, the easy one. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous, and it was such a pleasure to hear you play that. And um, so, so we, I think you and I just immediately bonded. Also, you sent out some kind of um, questionnaire on... Uh, what's that? Zoomerang? Or you, you, you posted some yeah. kind of developer questionnaire, and one of your questions was whether you would um, listen to Haydn while you program. Yeah. Well, I think it was like I was. I, it was a questionnaire to try to um, to gauge the self-reported level of filmmaker expertise mapped against knowledge and love of music. It's a really and to high try cor- to get there's an extremely high correlation, which I showed by the numbers. Yeah, and it's funny because for an awful lot of the people, it, it manifests in two ways. Um, there's a huge number of very gifted musicians. For instance, Susan Tucker is a is a symphony quality violinist. Yeah, and she, she played she played in string quartets in, in college with Yo-Yo Ma. Yes, and uh, she learned from one of my favorite violinists, Joseph Silverstein. He yeah, was her teacher yeah. for ten years, and um, and and professional, right? And so there's a huge correlation of musical talent. Um, then there's also the just the the foaming at the mouth fans like myself. I'm a very bad self-taught musician, but I I live and breathe it as a as a listener. I you know I'm you know the most devoted audience member there is, and um, and people have worked professionally like Dave Knight in the music industry also. But one way or another, music is really highly correlated with filmmaker development. What I what I thought was interesting, and it, it actually when I did that survey, it showed it even higher than I would have guessed. Is that like for the like intermediate level filmmaker developers, the correlation was pretty small. Oh. It was like maybe twenty to thirty percent of them would uh-huh. would show self reported expertise in music of some level. Uh-huh. But the people like the Ray Culligan level, uh-huh. you know, the people who do filmmaker all day every day, mm-hmm. have like an eighty percent correlation with music. Wow. It was wow. extremely high. This is funny because all my evidence is anecdotal, but now you've got some numbers. Yeah. Wait, we only had, I think, 100, 120 people filling out the survey. So it was the sample size was probably too small to show a real thing. But at least in the FileMaker community, mm-hmm. um, and this is also self-reported. You can't really you know, give someone a test on music and a test on database expertise, but <laughs> to try to get that level. And I threw in a couple of trick questions, and they're like uh, asking for really – obscure people to see if they even knew who they were like you know Arvo Pert and Henrik Goretzky and um, <laughs> you know Franz, I'm Franz sorry. Joseph Haydn who you know some people you know, everybody knows Mozart but they might not know Haydn or they've heard the name but they don't really th- you know it's funny Portland has Papa Haydn so the first time I heard of Haydn was as I, I associate it with great cream cheese uh, you know dessert. yeah yeah um, it's an awesome cheesecake. dessert restaurant cheesecake that's what I meant to say mm-hmm. yeah the um Oh, what's really funny is I sent out a fictional application to work at Kevin Frank and Associates five or six years ago to some friends. And, um, and one of the questions on it was, um, top ten favorite Belgian jazz musicians. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, and then um, top five reasons Oscar Peterson is the greatest pianist who ever lived. And then um, 
and then and then there was a footnote, you know, immediate disqualification if if you don't agree with this, unless unless possibly you're suggesting Art Tatum, right? <laughs> we'll at least entertain that. Sure. And um, so yeah. Really, Rock is straight out. I guess that's not really jazz. But. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? I, I was putting that on there to be provocative. List I, Franz Liszt, really? Well, again, he's not a jazz musician. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and um, well, but this is this would be a good segue for us, and that's just um, you know, your this musical love. Uh, would you say that that uh, that you're spread out among different genres of music, or are you more focused on classical? Or well, I I have a degree in music. I'm one of the many in the um, community that, that actually studied it, for what that's worth. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 but what I really loved about going to school for music was, it's something that you know, if I had a degree in computer science back in the 1930s when I was going to school, <clears throat> um, what good would that be now? Right. You know, I'd be able to build a uh, the, the equivalent of I'm trying to think of that machine that was the first machine, the um, Turing, machine? Turing machine. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, great, right? <laughs> it wasn't quite that all, but I mean, the, the computer classes they were teaching when I was in school was like Pascal. It was stuff that's just not relevant at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the things would would have been good, but what I really wanted to get when I was in music, when I was in school, was something that that I could have that I could deeply understand a given subject and grow in my understanding and love of that subject throughout my life. And I just wanted to, to um, you know, I, I have to say, I, I, I not not that you need to know my life story about that, but um. For me, music was always the um, the pleasure thing. I didn't want to try to earn my living in it because I was afraid it would ruin it. And the, the few little attempts I had at that proved that out pretty well. Yeah, I never wanted to earn my living at it either. Not only because it was it's a really, really hard living, uh-huh. especially in classical, I mean, which is where I was studying. Yes. Man, I mean, the, the competition to get a job in an orchestra or as a professional musician was intense. And you're competing with people with PhDs in performance uh-huh. who have been playing forever and ever and ever for a job that pays you know, 30,000 a year or something. Right. Hey, I, on a related note, were you ever a disc jockey um, in public radio or nope. otherwise? Maybe okay. night was. I learned yes last night. Oh, I was never a terribly good one, but here in Portland, I used to be on KBOO and I was at a station in Eugene before that and, um, and I've done it elsewhere also. But um, one of the things I found was there was a certain amount of pressure to come up with something new. Oh, I also did at KHSU in Arcata for many, many years, Arcata, California. Um, but... Um, but sometimes the pressure to come up with something new to play to keep, you know, this this pressure to, for newness, I found really distasteful, and it, it was sort of souring me. Like I stopped enjoying listening to music as much, and one of the reasons I retired. Now this was on mostly I was unpaid as a DJ, and I was never a terribly good one, but I was very knowledgeable. And um, so, is I found that to the extent that it was any kind of obligation, it really interfered with my enjoyment of it. So I was so I stopped being a any kind of disc jockey I think in 1999 and I've really fallen back in love with music in a way because there's nothing obligatory about it. Yep. It's purely for me now. On a related note, do you listen to music while you work? I yes, I can measure the quality of my day by how many how much music I listen to if I'm programming, not if I'm in meetings with clients, but uh-huh. I can't I actually can't write FileMaker code if I'm sitting there alone unless I'm listening to music. Wow. And does it matter whether there are vocals or not? doesn't okay yeah, i can't listen to a book on tapes when i'm programming no. but i listen to instrumental um and I'll, I'll it'll be really weird I'll, I'll throw in like you know uh the rachmaninoff recordings that he made on the piano rolls and was i love those uh we should compare which versions cause i've got both of them yes yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> me too um, <laughs> um and they're just so different because they're put on different pianos but it's exactly yeah. the same performance uh-huh. separated by 20 years in time 
It's weird uh, and great. Um, and I'll throw that in with like Foo Fighters, who I think is the greatest band in the world at the moment. Um, and a weird band called Danielle Ate the Sandwich, which is a like a folk singer. Uh-huh. She plays uh, ukulele, and I just her her songs are just lovely. She's great. Um, and I'll mix like I don't know a couple hundred songs in there, and just put it on random and listen. Uh-huh. Are you um, so uh, so? Does it matter whether or not you're already familiar with the music? Are you okay listening to music you're not familiar with while you're working? Yeah, uh, I buy. There's a maybe I don't know hundred or a couple hundred artists that if they come out with something new, I'll buy it the day it comes out. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so I buy I, I buy I don't know probably a new record a week maybe. Wow. Yeah, um, I also have a very high purchase rate. And um, one of the things I've done recently was um, I noticed the sound was really nice on my 24-inch iMac. So um, I took the headphone output, ran, adapted it to go into an amplifier with RCA jacks. Mm-hmm. And I got a, little ampli- got a big amplifier, actually 200 watts per channel. And um, from there, it's going out to six-foot Magnapan speakers. And so I have a very nice audio setup in my office. And, um, and I work standing. I, have one, I got this um, adjustable height desk. And um, so I work standing all day long. By the way, the secret to that is use a rubber pad to stand on, rubber oh, yeah. mat. Absolutely, you need to do it, okay, if you're, unless your carpet is super plush. Um, and um, so I'm just right there in the sweet spot between those speakers. I also have a 40-inch television that I use as a monitor. And, um, and uh, so and, uh, for me, it, I, it, it has to be music I'm familiar with. Uh, my choice, a lot of times it's chamber music. Um, Bach, I consider, I consider Bach to be a brain massage. And um, so a huge amount of the well-tempered clavier. And I got us a couple years ago, I got us a, um, I got us a subscription to uh, Spotify and a premium. It's mm-hmm. 10 bucks a month. The sound is really good. Mm-hmm. And so like... Um, well, it's uh, like 4416 stereo, right? So it's like CD quality sound. Yeah, I haven't... I'm not sure. I hadn't even checked. All I knew is sounds great. Mm-hmm. I was like so really surprised at how good it sounded. And so... Um, like I have a client who's a chamber musician um, as her hobby, and um, she had um, Mozart. I believe it was K five seven five on her license plate. So oh, I thought, well, funny. I better be familiar with that. It's one of his late quartets, I believe. I don't know. Um, and it's definitely a quartet. And um, all Mozart's numbers are given a Kershaw number, which is a sequential number of when he wrote the piece from one to over a thousand or whatever. Wow. Yeah, and Schubert has the D numbers, and and, and Haydn has two different numbering systems. Yeah, some composers have two or three. Yeah, yeah. And usually composers use an opus number when, uh, that they ascribe themselves, but then the other numbers like Kershaw are assigned by someone else afterwards. And the nice thing about those is they cover both the, the compositions that had opus numbers and those that didn't. Mm-hmm. So it's just a nice way to quickly target a work. So do you so, listen to classical well, jazz? Or you, well, I'll let you. Can, I, I want to finish. So just to finish the five seven five mm-hmm. story. So I thought, well, I better be familiar with this. So on Spotify, I searched it, and suddenly I found four nice versions. So I. Queued it up and made a playlist for Mozart K575. Um, so you're okay. So, the, and yeah, so Spotify's been a real game changer for me. And I have a friend who uh, he listens to Rhapsody, but the, the question was, are we buying more or less music? And I said, I think it's about equal because sometimes it scratches a curiosity itch. And it's like, I've got this high quality in my office. So if I'm going to buy it on CD, maybe it's because I want to take it home and hear it on my CD player. Um, but then, but other times it turned me on to things I didn't know about. For instance, I've always found Schubert's string quartets to be a little harsh. Um, I don't like stridency, and and they're you know they can be a little hard to listen to in places. But I found the 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 Vienna Concerthaus Quartet from the 1950s, and these guys were shameless about 
disregarding tempo markings or, or, or other notations in the, well, there wouldn't be tempo, but the notations in the score because they always wanted it to sound pretty. And so, and me, I'm a huge jazz buff. I don't mind improvisation and taking liberties at all, mm. at all. You know, I think not enough classical yeah. musicians feel that way, and they they will follow those markings, and they're often not not good. Well, and then, but they're so criticized for any any show of um, individuality. It That's seems true. you know, and and they don't get good points when they're in school for doing that either. So yeah, at Pausanera last time, I found like the the most extreme example of tempo variation that I'd ever encountered. Um, was comparing the um, one of the Bach inventions, the little harpsichord pieces. Yes. Were you at? The, I'm, just, I'm not sure if you're in this session. Yeah. I have two recordings of the piece. One of them is about 45 seconds long, and one of them is two minutes and 15 seconds. So, are we talking about the harp, the the instrument, the harp? Harpsichord. Harpsichord. Like the keyboard. Okay. Was one of the pianists Valery Afanasyev? No. Because he's famous for taking lugubrious tempos. Actually, the two different recordings. One of them was played by um, two a violinist and a violist. Okay. Um, doing it, it was just incredible, beautiful. Cool. Um, I'd like to track. And the down. and the other one was Glenn Gould. Okay. Let me guess. He was the faster. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, inhumanly fast and perfect. You know what's funny is um that box set came out about four or five years ago. Did you see it? It's the complete Glenn Gould recording. You know his whole professional life, he had one recording company, right? It was CBS or Columbia, mm-hmm. and so there's a box set with 80 CDs in it. It's his complete studio work. And there are some other things that are live things that were done. You know, he, he retired very young, so all the live stuff's from the 50s or early 60s. But, um, and it's just been such a treat to have his complete, his complete oeuvre yeah. sitting there in this one box. And it, the liner notes are horrific, but, uh, you know, like they're <laughs> tiny. It, 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 it's no good at all. But, if, but that's okay, too, because I want to, it's about the music, you know. Um, although some of his own self-written liner notes are hilarious, including him writing negative reviews of his own album under pseudonyms on the liner notes of the <laughs> album. That's awesome. Or saying things like his sense of humor was like at one point he referred to that this had been performed on a riverboat in Upper Segret- Segregatoria, Miss- Mississippi. Um, but on a related note, when I met my wife, um, I had Gould's uh, later 1980 or 81 recording of the Goldberg, 81, 1981 recording of the Goldberg Variations, and she owned Gould's 1955 recording of the Goldberg Variations. That's funny. I thought that was a really good sign, and we've been happily married for 24 years now. So, uh, do you do you venture outside of classical and jazz much? Do you do pop, rock? Oh yeah, hip hop. You know, I was when I when I was a little kid, uh, my father had a Fisher stereo console. That was back when that was a name to be respected, and he had paid five hundred dollars for that in about nineteen sixty. And so I grew up listening to classical music. We also had a 78 player, a really nice 78 player. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was hearing a lot of this music. He refused to let us. We didn't have a TV and we, we didn't listen to commercial radio. Um, so all I knew was classical music till I was five or six years old. Then I started getting babysitters that would sneak the uh, radio on to AM radio. So I remember Sugar Sugar by the Archies. And how old are you? Do you mind if I ask? 47. Okay, I'm 50. So we're roughly in the same domain there. And um, so I started secretly listening to the radio you know, and it wasn't that I was going to get a spanking, or but it was just not done in my house. And so, so I then learned that I could program the radio to wake me up. So when I was about six, I would wake up to AM radio every morning, and I set my alarm clock to do that. So I fell in love with it, and um, and you know, I can actually say I was listening to radio in the 1960s, just barely. And um, and I guess I just for whatever reason I was always just compulsive about wanting like so if. 
Here's a good example. I became a massive Who fan. So, of course, I tracked down every solo album by every one of those guys. And they're almost all garbage, but there's a few exceptions. Um, and, uh, but I was just a completist. So, oh, there's a guy, you know, musician A, I would just follow them. Uh, Bruce Springsteen had a piano player, still does, Roy Bitten. Mm-hmm. So I tried to find every recording that Roy Bitten was a guest artist on. And he has enlivened many great recordings, including Station to Station by David Bowie. You must spend a lot of time on allmusic.com where you can research yes. this stuff to the nines. Oh, yeah. And I used to talk to that guy. He, he wanted me to write for him. But I said, yeah, I don't see much value proposition there. But um, the, uh, the uh, uh, yeah, the just being a completist, I was going to say uh, Dire Straits making movies uh, is another great album that Roy Bitten appears on. In fact, sometimes I'll ask people. Yeah, I'm a huge Mark Knopfler fan. I'll say, I'll say, what does David Bowie's Station to Station and Dire Straits uh, making movies have in common? You know, and Stevie Nicks' Belladonna. They've all got Roy Bitten on piano. Interesting. I think, didn't David Bowie sing backup on a Mark Knopfler album? I don't, I don't know, but I do know John Lennon sang Backup on Fame by David Bowie. You oh, that's funny. You can hear his voice at one point. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I, I, my goal is to find what's great in any genre. I love Johnny Cash. But, I mean, I don't want to brag, oh, hey, you know, I'm just such a renaissance guy, you know. It's just a passion, and it never stops. I have a friend who's a foaming-at-the-mouth jazz fanatic, but it has to be recorded between 1955 and 1965, and preferably on the Blue Note label. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that's a universe right there. But, and he, he just looked at me one day, he shook his head sadly, and he goes, it just never ends, does it? You know? And that's how we feel. You know, there's no way you could exhaust it. And just within classical. Uh, I've been on a kick lately um, of the, uh, the Well-Tempered Clavier, and I own about 12 versions or 15 wow. versions of it. And, um, and they're all worth having. I don't keep them if they're not. I don't keep them just to keep them. You know, that's a, but I do, coming back to it, box of brain massage. My son is um, doing a music minor in his high school. They have an international baccalaureate program, and he's been playing Bach preludes, and, and he's actually gotten so good that it's just a pleasure to hear him play. And so it's, it's nice to have live music in our I house. Those pieces. I, I actually, uh, when I, I started playing piano after I graduated high school, and I, I don't know why, I, I played guitar and trumpet before that. And two years later, I was a music major in college, um, and piano was my main instrument. So I, I played intensely for those couple of years. Uh-huh. And the very, very first, one of the first pieces I played was that was a Bach uh, prelude. Uh, one of the really simple pieces, you know. And G. <clears throat> anyway. They, oh, you know what's funny? I think that might be in the Suzuki music program, which my which my youngest son went through. Says, I think I've heard that. You know, they make you play those tapes over and over again so yeah. the kid absorbs them. And um, yes, I, I, I don't know which one that is, but I definitely know the piece. Um, so, so I want to, you know, I'm doing most of the talking here, but um, I guess I just want to ask you, um, do you, 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 do you listen to country? Um, a little, not that much. Uh-huh. I, I really like bluegrass. Uh-huh. I love Ellison Krauss. Uh-huh. And then some, some other new grass and stuff like that. I, I, <clears throat> I like mandolin, so I listen to some mandolin music, but uh-huh. some of it's a little too, too far but yeah, I mean, music's a very personal thing. I, I thought it would be really funny to actually have a, a business card that said, taste accountant, since there's no accounting for taste, you know? <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. And um, so what's interesting, though, is, is you, you're passionate as a listener, and you mm-hmm. buy a lot of music. Some musicians, because they play it all the time, they, don't necess- they aren't necessarily huge fans of, of recordings. I've seen that a lot, actually. That's me too, yeah. yeah. Symphony players, when they go home, they don't listen to music. Yeah. You know, they're, if they're practicing an hour or two a day, they get their fill. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And then, but and so, and also, um, like I, I have a um, an occasional interaction with my very first music teacher. He's now in his sixties, um, and um, he was only thirteen years older than me. I didn't realize when I was a little kid he was only thirteen years older than me. He just seemed like a grown up, you know, when you're twelve and the other person's twenty five, right? But um, and I, I. Um, he just doesn't listen to much classical music. He has a gorgeous grand piano and he sits down and plays beautiful classical music whenever he wants. And he's, you know, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. He's teaches at Georgetown. Hmm. So I sent him Paul Jacobs recording of Debussy's Preludes. Are you familiar with it? Not that recording now. You need to be. Okay. Really? That's, that's one of those discs that I, rep- that I, well, it's a double. I buy it over and over again and give it to people. And, but I want to ask you about this handful of recordings that you feel like you must share and you spontaneously buy, and or you keep giving your copy to someone and then having to replace it. Tell me about a few of those. Huh. There certainly is a list like that. And a lot of them are things that, you, that are really hard to share because they're so weird. Like this Daniel ate the sandwich, which I feel so strongly about. Uh-huh. Um, it's just so, it was so out there that it connected with me. Probably not the first time I heard it, but mm-hmm. after, the, after 10 times or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and then she's got... Some of her albums really aren't that great, but this one called Two Bedroom Apartment, I think, is just awesome. Wow, I'm going to track that that's, down. That's in my top five of the last decade, I and think. And you keep giving it to other, you give, you've given it to other people, and then you have to buy and replace your copy. Yeah. To me, that's the no, litmus no. test. Well, actually, I'm an iTunes guy, uh-huh. so like, if I feel strongly about it, I will gift it to you on iTunes. I won't give you a gift card. I'll send you the album on iTunes. Well, you're a little younger than me. I tend to still buy people CDs, but I like this idea. Yeah. I sold... Yeah. Well, I, I, I had a large vinyl collection, and I sold it in 1983. Wow. I had a large CD collection I kind of sold and given and lost those over the years. So uh-huh. all my music is, is I, I don't even own 10 CDs at the moment. Okay. Um, I'm a little different. I, I own several thousand CDs. And um, I don't have a huge vinyl collection anymore, but I've been slowly building it back up again. At one point, at several times, I sold a lot of records. Um, I love the sound of vinyl. I think analog is far superior to digital, although once you get into the really high-res stuff. There's, a, there's a, a Nordic label. I'm trying to think. Is it Danish? It's called 2L. And they've got 24-bit stuff that just mm-hmm. sounds truly phenomenal. And I finally have a digital music player, and I can play that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, they, we're talking about feeling like you're standing next to a Bussendorfer Grand when the guy's playing. And um, none of the harshness. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it, – I, I think um, – whereas some people get endorphins from exercising. I get it from music. And um, so I just find myself just putting it on, turning it up loud and and just reveling in the sonic wash. It's right. like taking like taking a warm hot tub or something. Yeah, see, I'm kind of the other way. The uh-huh. uh, see, you listen on big magnifiers and a big amp. Uh-huh. I listen to either Sennheiser headphones uh-huh. when I'm at work and I can't really turn it on. Uh-huh. But in my home office, I have um, Genelec monitors, little ones, twenty uh-huh. twenty watt. Uh, driver for the tweeter and 20 watt for the woofer uh-huh. and a subwoofer uh-huh. which i don't even need because those things have so much awesome bass wow. but it, it so the, the theory the reason i got those and not regular speakers is because i wanted to hear it not the way that the engineer intended for it to be heard on home speakers uh-huh. but the way the engineer heard it when they were mixing it uh-huh. um thinking that it was actually going to be better mm-hmm. i don't know if it's really right because i think i've learned more stuff about music since then but Mm-hmm. They sound completely awesome. They're just perfectly transparent. And uh-huh. um, do you use tube gear? Um, no, these speakers are internal. I have, I have uh, all my guitar amps are tube amps, uh-huh. and yeah, that's the only way to go. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't actually have a tube amplifier uh, for for my uh, other speakers. I have some M and K speakers as well, regular. Yeah, I like the Genelex much better. They're just I don't know, so much more even. I am um, yeah. I've I've um, 
I, I don't want to go into the exegesis of the complexity of my stereo system, but I will say that vacuum tubes are involved at multiple layers. And um, so, but well, I want to... But they add something. It's like, sure. that's, they add I distortion. Like, I like what they add. Yeah. I, you, uh, yeah, I think they roll off some digital ugliness. Yeah, and, record player, uh, same thing, right? The needle, the distortion in the needle adds distortion that's pleasing. Distortion is fundamentally pleasing at, mm-hmm. at one level, which is why I use it for guitars, right? You know, that's it's funny. I just a lot of times it, what it comes down to is what do my ears like, and I don't care, you know, what the theory says. And it'll, some of it's room acoustics too, so you know, we can't discount that. But um, I, uh, my goal is if, is when I want to, I should be able to turn it up really loud, and it still sounds good. It doesn't sound harsh. It doesn't make me feel like I'm being bombarded or want to flee the room. Um, um, I'm thinking about some desert island recordings, so, so, um, and I'm definitely going to get your list. Um, I, um, yeah, I didn't really finish on my list. No, Let's see. say some more. Let's see. Uh, whatever Foo Fighters' current record is is always on my top five list, uh-huh. <laughs> and the latest one is certainly no exception. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, let's see. That Rachmaninoff piano uh, one. Which, say which one? Say which one? A Window in Time is yes. what it's called. Yes, yeah. I know that one. It's gorgeous, That's isn't the one it? recorded on the Big Bersendorfer, yeah. And and there's I can't remember what it's recorded on, but I like it better than the Zemf recreation, which yeah. is probably the other one you were thinking mm-hmm. of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some other ones in those series that are nice. I mean, I'm thinking of the Zemf set. The Zemf ones I got mostly just out of real curiosity. Um, you know, there's an Art Tatum. Uh, they did they redid Glenn Gould's 1955 one. Yeah. The, all of those Zemf ones, Z E N P H. I feel like oh, that's interesting, and I rarely play them. But the window in time specifically I put on for people and go, you want to hear how this might have sounded when Rachmaninoff played it. But, you know, and of course, not all piano rolls were created equal. Well, these ones are very different because they capture dynamics and pedals and, yes. and the, uh, the sostenuto pedal, uh-huh. which is key for a lot of these pieces, like the C-sharp prelude, which I'm learning how to play. Um, is that the middle pedal? Yeah, that's the one that on a grand piano, it shifts the entire keyboard and all the hammers over a little bit mm-hmm. so that the hammers, instead of hitting three strings, hit two or one. But that's not the soft pedal. Well, it's different than the soft pedal, which backs the hammers away from the thing so that it hit it with less force. Uh-huh. It actually hits it with the same amount of force, but doesn't hit as many strings. Okay. So a, grand, a big grand piano will have that pedal. Rachmaninoff, when he wrote the piece, said, if you're playing it with a keyboard that has this, then use this fingering. But if it doesn't, then use this other fingering. <laughs> And one fingering is much harder than the other one because it's cross-hand and they, it's really, really you know, weird. Anyway, um, I thought it was kind of fascinating. And there's stuff like that you only learn when you look at the score. Thank you. I've, I'm, in, I'm, I'm enlightened and educated. I read somewhere, and I'm trying to think who this was, some pundit. Um, and I can't remember which pundit it was. Someone who writes about piano pretty much for a living said he honestly thought Rachmaninoff was the greatest performing pianist of the 20th century. And, um, I, you know, I, he's someone I enjoy when I hear him. I, I love the fact. So we're talking about window in time. Mm-hmm. So these are piano rolls that, that were, um, that captured a lot more information than, than your standard piano roll, mm-hmm. which really just captured uh-huh. duration of note. Yeah. yeah. Duration and the note. Right. That was it. So it was like a harpsichord in the sense that, uh, that the volume didn't change on any given note. You could, you could make vo- more volume by pressing multiple notes simultaneously, multiple keys mm-hmm. simultaneously. But so um, 
But uh, but the window in time, there's something, and it's funny because some people would go, "Oh, look how long ago that was recorded. That can't possibly sound good. It sounds phenomenal." Well, because they recorded the digital information of every key, mm-hmm. they recorded also the other things about it, like not only how hard was it pressed, but how fast was the key pressed, which is really really different. Because if you press a, if you hit a key really quickly mm-hmm. and the hammer hits the string, uh-huh. versus press it slowly but with great force, it hits it in a very different way and makes a different kind of a sound. It's subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, but capturing all that really, really detailed stuff. So then with a window in time, the guy actually digitized it all mm-hmm. and cleaned it up and like fixed a couple little tiny errors where he accidentally hit two notes or whatever and didn't mean to. Right. Um, but didn't adjust any of the tempo or any of the, um, uh, of the performance. And then built a piano that could, could play every note as good as a finger could hit it with the same kind of things that were on it. Mm-hmm. Put it into a room. Uh-huh. Put microphones where, the, where Rachmaninoff would have sat. Right. In a way you could never actually do that with a real piano player. Uh-huh. And then push play on the MIDI, essentially, and listen to it back being played live by this piano. Right. And then listen to it in the studio and go, eh, I think it's a little wrong. I need to move the microphone three centimeters to the left. Mm-hmm. Redid it all with the exact same perfect performance until they can get this just incredible... The liner notes on that one were just mind blew my mind. You know, this reminded me of too. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying, and it is a great recording. It's called "A Window in Time." Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I was thinking about there's a book called "A Romance on Three Legs." Did you read that? Nope. Katie Hafner is the author, and it's about specifically about Glenn Gould's favorite piano. And um, he was continuous. He was a Steinway recording artist, but he kept asking them to make it sound like his beloved chickering piano of his youth, and. Um, uh, clearly, clearly, he was um, a, a very complex individual, but um, he had a piano tuner named Franz Mohr, M-O-H-R, and um, he was continually telling Franz to make the Steinway less Steinway-like. He found this piano that he loved, and he would pl- he played hundreds of pianos looking for it. He found it that he loved, and then he would have Franz continually tinkering with the action. And you know, Glenn Gould sat very low. He had a specially built chair. His father built it for him, and um, so he's like basically his eyes were level with the keys. That's how low he sat. <laughs> and um, and so one of the things that the recording engineers had two big challenges with Gould. One was that he vocalized heavily while he played, and, and he so, hummed along. You know, you can Love absolutely it. hear. Yes, oh, yeah. in the in the uh, opening and closing arias of the uh, second recording of the Goldberg Variations, he's extremely audible. <laughs> and and by the way, when I die and I'm on my deathbed, I want to hear that opening aria from the from the from the second recording of Noted. the Goldberg Variations. Thank you. Um, <laughs> or possibly Schubert D six six four. You really uh, are a classical geek. You're way more than me. <laughs> I, I probably five percent of my music on any given day probably is classical. Oh, but you see, but you play so beautifully. So it's inside of you in a way that it isn't inside of me. I only can get it through my ears. It's not in my head the same way it's in yours. I don't know. I just yeah. I, I, when I when I discovered Nirvana, like long, after Kurt Cobain died, I was like, wow, this is a whole different thing. I want I want this. Oh, I, I you know what? I mean, you and I could have really long conversations. I'm sure about rock or third world music or um you know strange very strange things favorite very weird recordings or something you're never going to hear if i don't tell you about it you know right, let's, let's let's wrap it up uh three three albums i'll give you you give me three albums i'm going to give you uh allison krauss a new favorite is one of my i love okay. that one i think it's just really really beautifully engineered um wow uh steely dan even though that totally dates me and people either love or hate steely dan but um gaucho 
going back. I think it's wow. I think it's just completely awesome. Wow, that's funny. Yeah. Gaucho's where I stopped listening, but Asia is on my turntable. Yeah, and actually, week. the the song Gaucho actually is just okay. yeah. Totally I, I'm going to go back and listen to short that list. because sorry, but I just have to say Asia is is Asia is a great album. And my third album that I totally love um, is one called Mambo Sinuendo that uh, Ry Cooter made with a guitar player named Manuel Galban. Uh, really, really great. Yeah, I think it won a Grammy for Best Instrument of the Year, like, I don't know, nine, early 90s, 93, something like that. So what are your three? Okay, well, I'm going to cheat and say four, but one's not a recording. One's just, in general, Haydn's string quartets um, are something I return to continually, and there's never a harsh moment anywhere, and that's a huge number to go through. He wrote them throughout his whole life. But I don't have a particular recording to recommend, because I have so many I love. So Conor's Quartet, uh, White, White Man Sleeps or whatever would be off your list then? <laughs> well, only because I'm not familiar with it. I mean, I, I couldn't say. Um, it's very dissonant and harsh all the way through, you know. Yeah, it, it, the harsh stuff I will tend to go like, I'll say, is there an Andante on here or, an, or you know, an Adagio, something? I'll like go to the second movement <laughs> often on those kind of things. Schnittke is a, is a guy who's like that, or oh, Block, yeah. or, or, yeah. or a lot of times Bartok. Sure. Um, so it's not that I won't listen at all to that stuff, but I'll still choose my poison carefully. Um, uh, Valerie Afanasiev, whose name I mentioned earlier, um, John Weinshall turned me on to this. Hmm. He did two recordings of Schubert's final um, piano sonata, D- D960, and his first one was recorded live, and it's on the ECM label. Mm-hmm. It is a religious experience, and, um, there, and even if you already had 20 versions of this, I would strongly recommend it. There's just he, pure magic from start to finish, and um, so that would be one. Um, something that's, that I've been listening to repeatedly lately is Shelby Lynn, the uh, country singer, did a tribute to Dusty Springfield. Hmm. It's called Just a Little Lovin'. Phenomenal. Mm. And nothing, I mean, it's very much a tribute, a warm, loving tribute to Dusty Springfield with the music sounding utterly different. It's mostly acoustic or uh, sparse instrumentation. I don't know that one, but the Herbie Hancock, Joni River thing was like that, which also won a Grammy. It was the same thing. I just totally love that record. Oh, okay. uh, I will definitely check that out. And um, I was I was kind of going back on the on the, on what should be number three, but I'm going to mention one that no one's ever heard of, mm-hmm. and it's um, I already mentioned two. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is even more obscure right. than those. Okay, at um, Willamette University is a um, is a music professor named John Doan. That's in that's in uh, Salem, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Doan, D O A N, and um, he's made a number of recordings, but most of them have been of the Celtic variety. But this particular one is the Lost Music of Fernando Sor who was a Spanish composer about 200 years ago. And it was written not for the guitar, but for an instrument called the Harpo Lyre, hmm. which, remember Jimmy Page with his two-neck yeah. guitars? Well, this is a three-neck guitar. Really? The middle neck is a standard guitar, and then the other strings are lower and higher. But um, it is just amazingly beautiful. And he doesn't like go to great extremes to prove that he's got these extra strings, but then he'll just tastefully fill something in. It's it's a disc it's one of the discs I've probably given this disc away more than anything else because I put it on frequently. People in the house say they love it. I give it to them and buy another copy. So the lost music of Fernando Sor. I've played a lot of Fernando Sor classical guitar stuff. I love his stuff. It's he does a lot of studies and they're just beautiful pieces. Yeah, I, I don't even know that much about him, but every time I hear him I go, Oh God, it's gorgeous. I'll, I'll play you one of his pieces in a little bit. We're doing the uh, the music jam session at today, so. All right, I really look forward to that. It's been a total pleasure, and you and I could go on like this for days. Yeah, half an hour is enough though for now. I think so. Thanks for your time. My, my pleasure. <laughs> 